Uh, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it is my awesome privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. Thank you all for being here this morning to honor the Lord, and for those of you who couldn't be here and you're watching online, thank you for tuning in as well. Uh, This Today we're going to be doing the uh, second sermon in our series, The Road to Easter, leading up to and including Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 32 through 42. And one of the reasons I paused when I got up here is when I opened my Bible, I saw I'd bookmarked the wrong spot, so I need to get there as well. For those of you here last week, you'll recall that I preached on the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem as he rode on a donkey into the city in fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah King. And as you will recall, he was surrounded by multitudes of his disciples, giving him praise, throwing their coats in front of the animal he was riding on, laying down palm branches to honor him, and and giving him praise as their King, as their long-awaited Messiah. Well, today we're going to be looking at another road that Jesus took on the way to the cross, but this is a much darker road. It's the road through Gethsemane, and unlike last week, this road has no crowds filled with admiration and praise for him. In fact, uh, it's a very lonely and difficult road that Jesus walks, as you'll see as we read through this passage. So look with me at Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. It will also be on the screen for you in case you need that. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little farther, he fell to the ground, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that the proper study of God's elect is God. In other words, the most important thing for a child of God to study is God himself. And one aspect of studying God is studying the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you get into the study of that, the person and work of Christ, known as Christology then you'll come across a number of false teachings that the early church had to contend with and ultimately reject as they were protecting the truth about Christ and, of course, exalting him. One of those heresies was called docetism, 
which was the belief that Jesus didn't have a real or natural human body, but instead, uh, during his life on earth, he had a phantom body or an apparent human body. In other words, he wasn't truly human. He was God, but not truly human. And like a desert mirage that appears to be water, Jesus appeared to be truly human, but in fact, he was not. Now, as you could probably infer, one massive problem with docetism is that it undermines our very salvation. As 4th century theologian Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, For that which he, speaking of Christ, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. In order for Christ to heal, in order for Christ to save humanity, he had to be truly human. And here's how that ties into today's passage. When you're studying scriptures, one of the most important questions you can ask as you're trying to figure out the meaning of it and, and the purpose of it is, why did the Spirit of God move men to include this particular passage in scripture? Today's passage, I think one of the reasons that's clear is that the Spirit wanted to show us the true humanity of Christ. He wasn't just playing the part of a man, he was truly a man, and therefore he is indeed fit and able and qualified to be our Savior and Messiah. So let's take a look at what happened in that dark place of Gethsemane. First, we see that Jesus deeply dreaded the suffering ahead of him. After Jesus shared the Passover meal with his apostles, he led them out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives to an olive grove called Gethsemane. The Gospel of John says that Christ often met there with his disciples. In fact, it was one of the reasons that Judas was able to lead a crowd there because it was a place that they often frequented when uh, Jesus wanted some seclusion. After they arrived that night, Jesus told all of them to sit down and wait, but he took three of them and stepped apart from the rest of the group. And at that point, Jesus began to confess to them what was going on inside of them. He began to show that he was acutely unsettled. Look at the words that, was used to describe, that were used to describe the Lord's emotional state. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The word translated greatly distressed also means alarmed or thrown into terror. Jesus was experiencing dread. He was troubled and he was overcome with sorrow. In fact, he felt... He went so far as to say that he was sorrowful even unto death. It was as if he was saying, my heart is almost breaking. I, I am so down, so deeply hurting that I could, I could die from it. And this is Jesus. This is the God-man who is perfect and sinless. And he is experiencing overwhelming grief. It's so bad that he thinks or realizes that it could kill him. Now, I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, before I go any farther, the true humanity of Jesus, not just experiencing the physical discomforts of living in this fallen world, not just going through things like physical hunger and physical pain, but even experiencing inner turmoil that's so common to the human experience. The Gospel of Luke tells us that his emotional suffering was so great that he actually sweat drops of blood during his prayer. Jesus was in emotional agony. And why? Why was Jesus so troubled? What drove him to this emotional pit? Well, you and I know the rest of the story. We know that the next chapter in his life involves physical suffering and death on the cross. <clears throat> and Jesus knew that as well. He had told his disciples that he was going to be turned over to the Gentiles, that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to be flogged, and that he was going to be killed. 
And in the next verse, he prayed that the hour might pass from him. So was that it? Was, was Jesus looking at the physical suffering that he was about to face, knowing that nails were going to be driven through his hands, knowing that uh, thorns were going to be driven into his head, and that was driving him into this deep, depressive state? Was that the problem that brought on this tsunami of grief and horror? Well, that is possible, and of course, a lot of students of Scripture do believe that, but I don't think that that's the case. I, I think that Jesus knew that there was something more than death that he was about to face. I mean, if you think about it, throughout history, there are a number of examples of people who knew that they were going to die and faced it with very calm resolve. For instance, when the philosopher Socrates was sentenced to death in Athens, on the day of his execution, Plato said that he appeared both happy in manner and words <clears throat> as he died nobly and without fear. Now, Socrates can't begin to compare to Christ, yet Socrates faced his death with this calm resolve. So what was Jesus so upset about? What was bringing him to this deep pit of sorrow and horror? Jesus knew that he would not simply physically die, but that he would become the sin bearer for us. And that he would not just experience physical death, but he would actually and literally experience the very wrath of God against sin. He would become the object of God's wrath. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Jesus knew that on the cross he would absorb the full measure of God's wrath against sin. Now you and I can't begin to understand what that would be like, but Christ knew he knew how awful it would be. He knew how terrifying, how horrible it would be to face the Father's wrath. And add that to the fact that Jesus had only ever experienced pure love, acceptance, and enthusiastic delight in his relationship with the Father. Our God is a triune God, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past and on into eternity and between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there has only ever been mutual love and delight and enthusiastic enjoyment of one another. And now Christ is looking forward to what's going to happen on the cross, and he knows that he is going to experience wrath from the Father, not because of something he did, but because of what you and I did. His heart almost exploded with sadness and terror as he thought about it. And let me just say this, friend, if you're experiencing anxiety or terror or fear or depression this morning, you know, you can know that your Savior experienced the same. You can know that he walked through those dark emotions as well. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he walked that road. He experienced the things that we experienced. The King James puts, as the King James Version puts it, he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus knows what it's like to feel dread and sorrow from the inside, not simply from an omniscient point of view, but from an experiential point of view. And he knows that more than any person that has ever lived. So if you're down this morning, if you're experiencing grief, if you are overwhelmed with sorrow, be comforted, comforted in knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced that as well. And the comfort that he offers to you is one of true sympathy. In fact, one of true empathy because he entered into those emotions as well. Because Jesus dreaded the suffering ahead of him, he prayed to avoid the suffering. 
In his troubled state, Jesus did what all of us should do. He turned to the Father. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And verse 39 says, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And verse 41 says, again, he came the third time from praying. Christ is absolutely distraught. So he steps away from Peter, James, and John to be alone in prayer. He falls on the ground and cries out to God, asking for the hour to pass and the cup to be removed. I don't know how many of you have been through this. I suspect uh, the majority. But you know that there are times when you are so far down and beaten that you can't stand up and offer, excuse me, you can't stand up and offer some kind of formal prayer. All you can do is fall on your face and cry out to your merciful God. (laughs) Pardon me. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ is in this moment. Absolutely overcome. And he throws himself on the ground prostrate and cries out to his father. Let this hour pass. Let this cup be removed. Both the hour and the cup refer to the ordeal that Jesus is about to go through. The ordeal of receiving the very wrath of God against sin. He addresses the Father as Abba. Interestingly, this is the only time in the entire New Testament when Jesus refers to the Father as Abba. Abba was an Aramaic word that was used by children as well as adults to refer to their fathers. It's an intimate way of addressing God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, Abba here suggests that Jesus' primary concern was that drinking the cup of God's judgment on sin would necessarily disrupt his relationship. Author James Edwards, excuse me, I'm sorry. Composed myself. Author James Edwards observes that Jesus is praying for the Father not to strike the shepherd. Referring to Mark 14, 27, when Jesus said, you will all fall away, talking to his disciples, you will all fall away. As it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah 13, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. The outpouring of the wrath of God upon God's chosen shepherd was always part of his plan of redemption. And Christ was well aware of that. But now that it was close, now that he was on the very doorstep of experiencing it, the reality of what that meant was stirring up this flood of grief. Verse 35 says that he asked for the hour to pass if it were possible. And then in verse 36, Jesus confesses that all things are possible for the Father. Now, he's not contradicting himself. When he says all things are possible for you, he is acknowledging the Father's omnipotence. But in asking if it were possible... He's asking if it could be the Father's will that the plan of redemption would be accomplished without the outpouring of his wrath on the Son. Could it be your will, Father, to take away this cup of suffering for me? Is there any way to save my people without drinking the bitter cup of your wrath? Neither Christ's love for the Father nor Christ's love for the lost waned in the least in Gethsemane. Jesus was just as committed as ever excuse me, just as committed as ever to redeeming the lost. But in his humanity, the horror of the price he had paid drove him to request a different path to complete the plan of redemption. 
Christ Jesus in Gethsemane is at rock bottom, knowing what the Father's will is, but dreading with all his soul the suffering that it would entail. So he prays. He voices his impossible petition. He prayed, then he returned to Peter, James, and John. And then he left them to pray again, and he came back to them. And then he left them a third time to pray. And I hope it encourages you to know that Jesus was once in a situation where he dreaded obeying the Father's will. You and I have experienced that. You've had situations where obedience to God would cost you, and not out of some sinful desire to avoid dealing with the will of God, doing the will of God, but out of the desire to avoid pain, you recoil from doing it. You dread confronting your friend about moving in with his girlfriend, afraid that your relationship will be permanently damaged. You dread telling your cousin that she's lost and needs salvation, thinking that perhaps she won't talk to you again. When you face, excuse me, what you face, what you and I face, cannot possibly, oh, thank you, cannot possibly compare, God bless you, David, to what Christ faced. I did not plan to get choked up about this. What you face obviously can't compare to what Christ faced, but you don't need to add guilt to your dread. So what I'm saying is if you are feeling dread, fear, anxiety about doing a hard thing that you know is right in the will of God, Christ Jesus had the exact same experience, and he never sinned. So it is not sinful to be scared or anxious or fearful to follow through on what you know God is telling you to do. Tell God what you're feeling. Tell God what you're going through and ask him the impossible petition in order to drive through to yielding to the Father's will. Jesus prayed to avoid suffering God's wrath, and then he went one step farther. He prayed for the Father's will to supersede his human will. Now, you notice on the screen, or if you're looking at the sermon notes, that I put the word human in parentheses, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But first, I want you to focus on the greatness and the excellence of the prayer that Jesus prayed here. After asking if it could be possible for the Father's plan to be different, after asking the Father to remove this horrible cup of suffering, he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Father, this is my request, but I want your will to supersede my own. Hebrews 10 says, when Christ came into the world, he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So here he is in his most difficult moment of temptation, submitting his will to the Father's will. Jesus taught his followers to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, and he's doing the exact same thing. Once again, Christ shows that he is fit to be our Messiah, our Savior, our sin bearer. He is truly human, afflicted with turmoil on the cusp of great suffering, and he is truly God, perfect in his humanity, perfect in his love for the Father and his love for lost people. His will to serve his father is greater than his will to save himself from the most extreme suffering of all time. He is willing to absorb the full wrath of God for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being our wonderful savior. Jesus fought in prayer to be willing to pay the highest price for your salvation. I mentioned a minute ago that I offset the word human when I said that he prayed for the Father's will to supersede his human will. The reason for that goes back to a 7th century heresy called monothelitism. Monothelitism is the belief that Jesus had only one will, his divine will. And that sounds reasonable. 
that really kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Of course, he has just one will. I mean, he's one person. But that's actually not the case. <clears throat> Monothelitism was condemned in the Third Council of Constantinople in AD 681, which ruled that Christ had two wills or two natural volitions in him and that his human will followed and was subordinate to the divine will. Now, one of the reasons they came to that conclusion is that a will is a necessary aspect of human nature. So again, going back to Gregory of Nazianzus, only what Christ assumed is healed or saved. He had to assume the entirety of human nature in order to save the entirety of human nature. In order to be truly human, he had to have a human will. <clears throat> because only as a true human could Christ serve as our representative substitute on the cross. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Therefore, Jesus did have, did assume a human will. And in addition to that, there are verses like the Garden of Gethsemane and then John, <clears throat> John 6, 38, where Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So when he says my own will, he must be referring to his human will, since his divine will is the same as the will of him who sent me. God is one being eternally existing in three persons, so he has one unified will. But Jesus makes a distinction between his will and the will of God, meaning that he had a human will and a divine will, which means that even here in Gethsemane, there was no disruption in the divine will. His divine will was always the same as the Father's, but his human will recoiled at the thought of facing divine wrath. So he had to fight in prayer to be willing to do what had to be done. And I want you to be encouraged by that, that our Savior had to pray repeatedly to yield his human will to the Father's will. You and I go through that regularly, don't we? I know what God's will is in this situa situation, but I don't want to do it. Lord God, help me to will, to want to do what you want me to do. If Jesus had to wrestle to be willing, we should expect no less. On top of facing grief beyond what any man ever faced, the disciples who were closest to Jesus failed to support him. Peter Hathaway Capstick was an author and big game hunter in Africa and South America. And he tells the story of a man on a lion hunt in Africa. And when you're hunting lions, the practice, at least then, was uh, to have a man standing behind you, a gun bearer, who would have a second rifle. So that if you missed or you merely injured the lion, and the lion, lion figured out where you were and came at you, you would readily have a second gun <clears throat> to then take down the lion before it ruined your weekend. Well, Capstick tells the story of a hunter who was on a hunt and experienced this exact thing. He hit the lion, but he did not kill the lion. The lion figured out where the shot had come from and then began charging him with, uh, with malice, <laughs> a forethought. And in this instance, the hunter reached back for his second rifle and only clutched air. And he turned around to check with his gun bearer, and his gun bearer was already 50 yards away headed toward the nearest tree. In his hour of desperate need, his friend that he was relying on deserted him. And that's kind of like what happened with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was relying on his closest friends to support him, to stand with him. And whenever he reached out to them, they weren't there to stand with him. All of the apostles, of course, were his friends. 
But Peter, James, and John were his closest friends. They were the only three that he took with him, for instance, when he went to Jairus' house to raise his daughter from the dead. And more importantly, Peter, James, and John were the only three apostles that he took with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when he unveiled some of his visible divine glory. These three were his inner circle of friends, and he wanted their presence and support in this dark hour. It says he took with him Peter and James and John and said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, what was he telling them when he said remain here and watch? He was saying, guys, pray for me and stay up for me so that when I come, you're there to support me. You're there to talk with me. You're there to show me your affection and your love and your loyalty. But they failed him. After pouring his heart out to the Father for about an hour, he came back to the three and they were all sleeping instead of watching and praying. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now it would have been understandable if Jesus had just exploded in anger at these his closest friends failing him in his darkest hour of need. But Christ, of course, is not that way. He is not given to fits of rage. Instead, he gives them a gentle rebuke aimed specifically at Simon Peter. Could you not watch one hour? Couldn't you fight off sleep for one hour for my sake? Of course, this rebuke would apply to all three of the men, but I think that Jesus singled out Peter because that very night, Jesus had said before they got to the garden, you guys are all going to desert me. And what had Peter said? Now look, these guys may, not me, Lord. The rest of these guys, you can't depend on them, but you can count on me. And I think Jesus was trying to again highlight for Peter his overbounding pride and the need for humility. Peter, you couldn't even watch an hour with me. You just boasted that you won't fall away. You won't run away. You won't desert me. I give you a chance right here, and you failed me. He warned the disciples of their need for watchfulness in prayer. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Author James Edwards writes, the admonition to watch and pray because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak is a necessary reminder, now listen to this, a necessary reminder that trusting and obeying God are not default responses of disciples of Jesus. We should instead expect ongoing struggle against temptation and weakness. You aren't strong. I'm not strong. All of us are weak spiritually and need the grace of God every moment. Peter and the rest of the disciples were tempted to think that they were strong and that they could resist temptation, and Jesus is giving them a warning. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Since your human flesh is weak, pray. Ask for the strength of the Spirit. Two more times Jesus left those three, and two more times he came back to them to find them sleeping. Verses 40 and 41, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Even after being corrected by Jesus, these three disciples fall to the same temptation. Two more times, the same night. They're weak. We're weak. Even the best men and women fail. It's a powerful illustration of the folly of putting your confidence in man. 
Men fail. Men are weak. But Jesus is strong. Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus faced his greatest temptation without the support of his followers. And he still was victorious. All alone, Jesus battled in prayer to be willing to follow the Father's will. Then after praying, Jesus was resolved to follow the Father's will. As this passage ends, we see Jesus rising victorious over the temptation to avoid the horror of the cross, the very wrath of God. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now listen to this. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you see now the calm acceptance of the cup he's about to drink? The hour has come, and I'm about to be betrayed. Let's get up and face it. After his long battle in prayer, <clears throat> after his long battle in prayer, he has submitted to the Father's will, and he won't look back. He will not resist his arrest. He will not resist his unjust trials. He will not resist his mocking, his flogging, his beating, nor his crucifixion. He will courageously receive it all, and most importantly, he will absorb the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus stared into the dark abyss of spiritual suffering, in essence, looking into the mouth of hell itself, and he labored in prayer until he could fully accept leaping into that dark abyss for the sake of the Father and for our sake. Now he would complete the great work of redemption. Now he would crush the head of the serpent, glorify the Father, and purchase our pardon. I love the way Robert Stein describes this moment when Jesus says, rise, let us be going. He seeks not to escape by flight those who seek his death. On the contrary, he initiates the encounter as he goes on to meet his betrayer and those he leads. It is not a weak, effeminate Jesus of much Christian art who goes out to meet his enemies, but the conquering son of man and son of God. It is the one who is the Lord of nature, of the demons, of disease, and of death. Yet, he defeats his enemies by dying for them. Amen. Alone and grieving, Jesus vanquished his greatest temptation by wrestling in prayer to yield to the Father's will. He didn't have the support of his closest friends. He was experiencing grief and misery that affected him physically beyond what any man has ever experienced But he was still victorious. He conquered his temptation to avoid God's wrath on the cross. He wrestled in prayer until his human will yielded to the Father's will. Without the victory of Gethsemane, there would be no victory on the cross. But the Father knew that he would be victorious in that garden. The outcome was never in doubt. The first Adam failed in his temptation in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus, whom the Bible calls the last Adam... He conquered his temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. And because of that victory, you and I have forgiveness and union with God. Christ won in Gethsemane, and he won at Calvary, and he shared his victory with us. Since Jesus has vanquished his temptation, since Jesus was victorious in this great battle, I urge you to give him praise today for yielding to the Father's will. Give him honor for walking that dark road through Gethsemane, though he was alone and deeply troubled. I also encourage you to pray for someone that you know that's in a hard place. 
and let them know that you're praying for them. Jesus was alone in his battle. His, his followers failed him, but you can make sure that someone in your life doesn't experience that, that they're not alone in their suffering. Maybe you know a brother or sister in Christ who's in a terrible trial. Intercede for them. Pray for God to give them strength and wisdom and healing and deliverance and provision. <clears throat> and then let them know that you're praying for them. Give them a call, send a text, or write on the letter. Excuse me, pray for the Lord to push back the enemy's attacks and tell this brother or sister that you're standing with them. Or maybe you know an unbeliever, <clears throat> or maybe you know an unbeliever who's going through the fire right now, a divorce, death of a loved one, broken family. Pray for the Lord to intervene in that situation and through his intervention to draw them to himself. And tell that friend that you're praying for them. Tell that friend that because of the love of Christ, you are praying for them. Perhaps the Lord will use that to draw them closer. Let's stand and close in prayer. I realize, uh, and I know I say this often, but I don't think it can be said too often. Whenever I'm giving you applications, there's often a sense of, okay, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to put an action item on my list. And there are things God wants us to do. That is indeed part of the Christian life. But you stand before God, accepted and beloved, purely on the basis of what Christ has done. And as we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, he succeeded. He fought back the temptation. He was victorious. And it is because of his victory that you stand before God. <clears throat> Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you that he came to this earth to be born as a helpless little baby. And then he walked this dirty, fallen, sinful world, perfect in his obedience, perfect in his faithfulness. And then he walked the road through Gethsemane as he faced the horror of experiencing your wrath. And he overcame the temptation to turn away from that for your sake and for our sake. And we praise him today. Lord God, I pray if there's anyone here or anyone online that's watching that does not know you, that they will cry out for mercy to you, that they will recognize that they are sinful and separated, facing your wrath, but that Jesus Christ took that wrath so that they wouldn't have to. May they cry out to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness today. And God, for your people, your children, may their faith in you be strengthened May your love for them be made more real. May they experience a special measure of grace today. Thank you, O oh God, for your presence in our lives and in this body of Christ. I ask for you to use us this week to glorify your name, and may we walk in your presence. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters.